Two and a Half Admins, episode 76. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is FreeBSD Periodic Scripts. Yeah, uh, so FreeBSD has a system called Periodic that's designed to run uh, certain tasks either daily or weekly or monthly. Different than a cron tab in that it queues them all up so you only run one of these tasks at a time, but they all get done as a group and then a, a report gets emailed to you. And we cover how to add your own stuff to that and how to adjust which ones get run so that if you don't want it, it's not scanning your whole file system for set UID binaries, you know, scanning your entire media collection for no reason and how to tune that. All right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And Jim, you found this. Windows needs at least eight hours online to update reliably. This surely, surely cannot be true. It is true. And you understated it, Joe. It's not just that Windows needs eight hours online. It needs eight hours online per day, every day, available to receive and install and apply Windows updates. I really wish that I was just taking the piss, but um, no, that comes straight from Microsoft. And, you know, as an experienced Windows system administrator myself, they're not kidding. It, it really does. Now, you can go for quite some time with less availability for updates than that. But eventually, yeah, you're going to need it because the problem is that the Windows update mechanism is absolutely the most ridiculous, baroque <laughs> and broke piece of crap I've ever seen. But hang on, is this missing the word automatic here? Because I've done a lot of manual Windows updates, having just turned on the machine, takes about an hour, say, and then it's done. Sure, but do neurotypicals do that kind of thing? No, they do. They just get annoyed every time the pop-up comes up telling them they have to update. And they're like, if I never leave the computer on, it never does that. You're also, Joe, you're understating this because you're talking about the typical manual initiated Windows update session that might take between a half an hour and an hour. And you're forgetting the fact that when you have a bad patch Tuesday, you know, let alone if you get like a an upgrade from Windows 22 H1 to Windows 22 H2, not even getting into that stuff, just a bad patch Tuesday, you may need to download one set of updates, install partially that set of updates while the system is online, then initiate a restart during the shutdown process, it may install more updates that it didn't while you were working. After the reboot, during the initial boot back up before it lets you back into the desktop, it may apply yet more and ask you to wait for those. And then once it gets back to the desktop, there may be another round that it needs to apply and it won't have necessarily downloaded all of those. And it certainly won't have begun actually applying them until after that first initial reboot process. It can require the entire thing all over again. Now, you add that to the fact that, and you have to have noticed this, Joe, even as relatively Windows inexperienced as you are, a lot of the time, if you manually initiate an update, you say, hey, I want to go search for updates, and you know there are updates out there, and you need them. Have you never seen it take Windows, you know, like 15 or 20 minutes just to show you the list of updates, much less start downloading them? Because that happens a lot. Yeah, that's true. Or I just reboot a couple of times and I know there's got to be updates. Check it. No, non-available. Reboot. Check it again. No, reboot again. Hey, you know, 500 updates or whatever. Which the reboot is really just cargo cult. As far as I can tell, sometimes the backend infrastructure on Windows Update is just incredibly slow. And I don't know all the things that are going on there. It's it's clearly got a just absolutely insane amount of legacy cruft and... um 
it's a little brain breaking trying to figure out why it does all the ridiculous things that it does, especially once you get used to a Linux or a FreeBSD that downloads every single update at once, installs all of them at once while you work. And if you need to reboot at all, it's literally just so that, you know, the kernel and uh, possibly a kernel mode driver that, you know, it isn't safe to unload while the system's running like a graphic driver to get the new ones actually running. Now, the update is already installed. So even the reboot, it's not like that Windows update reboot where you're like, oh God, it's going to tell me like, you know, in, uh, installing update number one of 833, you know, before it gives me the desktop. No, it's just a normal reboot because it's all installed. It's ready to go. You're just rebooting the system so that you can reload the kernel. Yeah, it always drives me nuts when I'm trying to update my laptop before going on the road or something. And it's like, I really don't want to be like trying to power off my laptop to get on the airplane and have it be like, installing updates, you better not power off your machine. (laughs) Well, some modern Linux systems actually do this now, offline updates. And there are certain reasons for it, certain arguments that I've heard from the KDE team with lower power devices, like phones and stuff that they're targeting. But it is increasingly more common in the Linux world, and I don't like it. I much prefer the way my Ubuntu system and my Ubuntu server systems work, which is exactly as you've described, Jim. I'm not sure what the KDE developers' arguments were, but if their argument is that you can't just go ahead and install all the updates, and you know maybe you want to require a reboot after you're done, but if you can't download and write all the stuff to disk and get it ready to load on a normal reboot, just... No, it's not okay. You don't have a good technical argument for that. It's crap. You need to get back to work. There's something you've missed badly. In Windows, you have the problem of, and I think it's mostly a legacy thing, of like you can't modify that file while it's open, which is generally not a thing so much on, on other file systems. Meaning that, you know, Windows is like, well, I we have to stop most of Windows so we can overwrite the files we want to update. And it's like, well, you know, you could finagle something so that you just put the file somewhere else and say, load it from over here now instead, you know, version the file names or something, but they don't do that either. For our listeners who aren't already intimately familiar with how uh, Linux and BSD file systems handle this problem, what Alan's talking about is something we call orphaned file handles. If you've got a file open and you delete that file while it's open as root, you are absolutely allowed to do that. Now, what happens is all the processes that have that file open that you removed they still have access to that file exactly as it was on disk for as long as they're running. The sectors on disk don't actually get reclaimed until the last process that had that file file handle open closes the file handle. And at that point, the old version of that file is absolutely gone. So if you want to do an update to a file that several processes have open for whatever reason, what you do is you just RM the old version of the file. All the processes that were accessing that file via an open file handle still have access to it unchanged. To them, it's like you haven't removed it at all. Now you save a new file to the same name. And again, it still does not impact any of your running processes that had open file handles. When you want them to refresh and get the new version of the file, you just close those file handles and reopen them. You can either do that within the application, literally just close the file and reopen the file and you get the new one. Or, uh, you know, a little bit more brute force approach. You can terminate the entire service or application and start it again. And when it goes to open the file handle, it gets the new version. Or the ultimate brute force approach, which is just reboot the whole system, which ensures, well, we're definitely not going to have any orphan file handles now because we've closed every single process and reloaded everything from kernel on up. Windows does not generally do the orphan file handle thing. 
You're saying that this is a fundamental difference in architecture, and that's why Windows Update is never going to be as good then? Well, that's the thing. I'm pretty certain that modern Windows is capable of doing the orphan file handle thing, but it's not a standard practice on that side. You would need to update a tremendous amount of legacy infrastructure basically to be aware that that is possible and to do things that way where it's just kind of always been that way in the Unix-like world. Yeah, and you know, the other thing I wanted to point out was like, you can tell just from the name of it, the, the thing that actually downloads Windows updates for you is called BITS, the Background Intelligent Transfer Service. The fact that it tries to be intelligent is probably the reason why it sucks so much. <laughs> it's like, you know for a fact that Microsoft's going to have a decent CDN for downloading the actual Windows updates. So why are they seem to be so worried about trying to slew things out and so on? Like, I understand they don't want the thing of, hey, every computer in your office is going to start trying to download this at 1201 midnight or whatever and hammer your office network. It's nice to have things splayed out, but it just seems like they're trying too much. It's, it's trying to be too smart and it's just making it terrible. That is a problem, but I think a bigger problem in the Windows world is is part of me wants to say that community, but let's be honest, it's really just Microsoft. The Microsoft internal community is, um, they have a very laudable goal of, you know, having the longest period of backwards compatibility of just about anybody, and they frequently achieve that. But that comes with some serious drawbacks, and it also leads that community, and again, I'm talking about within the company here, it leads that community to not value going back and doing cleanup work quite so much because every bit of cleanup and improvement you do is also an opportunity to introduce new bugs and introducing and then fixing those new bugs. We're, we're talking about labor that's not immediately going to return a buck to the company, right? If it's not something that you can actively sell and say, oh, hey, look how much better this is now. And instead of say, well, you know, this might be kind of a pain in the butt for a while as we work out all the kinks. That's not something that sells. There's not a whole lot of appetite for that. Whereas in, you know, the the Unix-like world, whether you're talking Linux, Solaris, you know, BSD, you know, what have you, it tends to be a lot more engineer-driven. The primary target of the operating system tends to be a lot more on the, you know, engineer and like IT professional side than the just end user who's going to give you 50 bucks for a copy of the operating system or whatever. And... I think amongst that target community, there's a lot less patience for, well, this is old and crappy because it's always been old and crappy and we don't have the appetite to go fix it. Amongst that community, it's like, no, this this is garbage. You need to fix the things that are broken. You need to get up to date. You know, yes, we can break things as long as we make them better afterward. There was a blog post recently from Stefano Marinelli called Why We're Migrating Many of Our Servers from Linux to FreeBSD. And this uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons, I think you might say. You're the only Brit in the channel, Joe, so no, I think that's what you might say. <laughs> okay. As our resident FreeBSD junkie, I think it's on you to open this one up, Alan. I wonder if, if a little bit of the point got lost in the translation from Italian to English, but uh, they make a bunch of interesting points. They're usually the same ones that you've heard before. The fact that the entire operating system is developed together rather than your typical Linux distro, which takes the kernel from this project, plus, you know, GNU core utils from over here and a bunch of other utilities, and then whatever their own packaging system, and then the packages and combines all that together in an operating system. Whereas FreeBSD, all of that comes from one repo. And so it's all meant to work together as once. And so a great example of this is ifconfig. 
the legacy interfaces for that were a problem on Linux. And because the kernel is developed by completely different people than the people that write ifconfig, there was no way to really synchronize and, and agree on how to change that. Because if, you know, if you grab newer ifconfig and an older kernel, they wouldn't work together. And a newer kernel and older ifconfig might not work together. And you have this problem. Whereas on FreeBSD, because those two get released together as a package, it means it's possible to change the interface that ifconfig uses in the kernel and keep things working without running into the same problems and the issues of backwards compatibility. So what you're saying, he said, putting his troll face on, is that on FreeBSD, they can stagnate at an equivalent rate. <laughs> uh, well, what I would say about FreeBSD is we've managed to keep up with Linux with something between 10 and 100 times fewer engineers. Have you, though? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the argument against this is quite simple. This is what distributions are for. It is a distribution's job to make sure all the bits work properly together. Agreed completely. I suppose. It just, it seems like that'd be a lot easier if they just made their own kernel then. Which is basically what they do, right? The, the kernel you get from Ubuntu isn't just the stock upstream kernel from this specific version number. No. It's that plus these back ports and all this other stuff and, and it all comes together. Yeah, but I'm just not having that as an argument because that's literally what a distro is for, is to put those bits together and to work on the kernel in the case of Ubuntu. So that is a spurious argument, I'm afraid. Don't make me come in on Alan's side. It's not an entirely (laughs) spurious argument. Yes, there is an additional kind of consistency. It can be easier to coordinate teams. But, you know, my kind of lighthearted jab is a little valid as well. I, I I don't really agree with Alan that FreeBSD has entirely kept up with Linux. It's still trying to catch up with Linux in a lot of places. But again, that doesn't mean that you should absolutely be using Linux, not BSD either. They, they each have their strengths and their weaknesses. And I think the most important distinction between whether your shop should be using Linux or BSD in most cases doesn't even come down directly to the technology. It comes down more to your team. What is your team more familiar with, more comfortable with? What fits better into the ways that they want to work? Because there are differences in the workflow between Linux and BSD, and some will appeal to some people more than others, and it can go in either direction. I think that is by far the most important distinction is you need to be using the distribution that your team is comfortable with and productive with, whether that distribution is Ubuntu or whether that distribution is Rocky or whether that distribution is FreeBSD or NetBSD or HardenBSD, on down the line. I would agree with that. Yeah, and he talks about containers as well and how FreeBSD has jails which are much more mature than Docker and Podman and all the others, LexD, LexC. But again, surely that comes down to your experience. If you are really experienced with jails like you, Alan, then use FreeBSD. But if you are a Docker expert, then use Linux. There absolutely are some technical differences between, uh, you know, jails and Linux style containers. And again, you know, there are pros and cons on both sides. For the most part, I think you're right. And a lot of it comes down to the experience and comfort level of the team that's working on them. In more specialized cases, there can absolutely be hard technical arguments, but I think that comes down to a case-by-case basis. I don't think anyone should be trying to make a universal blanket statement that jails are better than containers or containers are better than jails. They are different technologies that accomplish largely the same function. Jails are more mature on FreeBSD. On the other hand, the advantage with Linux is Linux has had a lot more developer mindshare for a long time, and that 
can have cons as well as minuses, but it means that Linux tends to evolve a little faster. It also means it tends to be less organized because, again, you don't have the same coherent overall structure kind of directing everything that you do on FreeBSD. But you're still kind of back to the like, okay, we've got this one side that tends to go faster and the other side that tends to be catching up. But we've also got the side that tends to have, you know, more top-down consistency and the other side that may be a bit more of a dog's breakfast, you know, going from one piece of it to another. My main reason for using BSD is because it's what I know. And every time I try to use something else, I'm like, I just want the tools that I know how to use. Oh, that brings up another point that I was trying to reach for when I was talking about, you know, the, the greater mind share. One of the advantages to that potentially a lot of it depends on how much of somebody else's stuff you want to consume versus how much you want to build from the ground up. If you need to consume a bunch of pre-made pieces, parts, a lot of the time you'll find that a lot more of that just kind of ready to use infrastructure tends to be over on the Linux side because that's where more of that layer of developers tends to be. If you're wanting to build everything from the ground up, it uh, frequently becomes a lot easier to justify saying, well, no, I want to go over on the BSD side. I like that consistency. These tools do exactly what I want. I'm familiar with them. And I don't need to directly work with teams that are expecting Linux, but I'm throwing BSD into the mix. Right. Now, again, this is not a dig against FreeBSD. You know, in an alternate universe, FreeBSD could have the majority of the mindshare and Linux would be saying exactly the same kinds of things, you know, from the other way around. And for that matter, 20 years ago, you could very much say that about Linux versus BSD. BSD was a lot more mature and Linux was playing catch up. It's just that it caught up and kind of kept accelerating. Well, a couple billion dollars from IBM goes a long way. No argument. It absolutely does. And not just IBM, you know, a lot of money, a lot of mindshare all over the place. It ends up meaning you also get a lot of things that you may not love. I am not a big System D fan. System D does bring a lot of really cool, particularly developer-focused capabilities that were difficult or impossible to accomplish without it. However, it also brings in a whole bunch of just god-awful pottering yuck that I really want no part of. But that's kind of part of the thing. You know, you have to cope with your entire ecosystem, the good bits and the bad bits. And you decide on whichever ecosystem has the best mix of the things you do like and the things you don't like. Uh, For me, that was FreeBSD uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And for me, Linux accelerated past and I jumped ship somewhere around like 2006, 2007. And I haven't really wanted to go back. But that does not mean that Linux is just better or, you know, on Alan's side, you know, him finding BSD still better suited to what he wants to do doesn't mean that FreeBSD is just better. Again, it just it depends on what you want to do, which tools you want to work with, and where your comfort level is. Exactly. And the interesting about FreeBSD that's been both a plus and a minus is that really it's a, a set of Lego to build your thing, whether that's an appliance or just a server or whatever. And it's often about 80% of the solution is missing that last little bit that makes jails into Docker or makes managing a bunch of jails into something like Kubernetes. It's just missing that last bit that makes it to productize it. But it means that you can start with FreeBSD and build something like that if you want, but it's kind of left up to you to do that last 20%. And that makes it a great base for building a bunch of things, but not necessarily the off the shelf solution that some people are looking for. Yeah, I would agree. And that's that's back at the same point that that I made earlier that, you know, if you want to build more of your own stuff yourself, FreeBSD tends to start looking better. What about the network stack? 
The argument here is that FreeBSD's network stack is still superior to Linux's, but that is not necessarily true, is it? It is not. It's a little hard to measure, but lots of network-focused companies have continued to choose FreeBSD as their base because it's where their expertise lies or and because it's easier to get changes upstream and because it already works out of the box. Where their expertise lies is a huge one, in my opinion. But at the same time, like it, the, it's led to the same thing on Linux, where you see a lot of stuff moving into user space, where you see even things with user space network stacks. And almost all of those user space network stacks you see running on top of Linux are the FreeBSD network stack, because it was built to be able to be modular and, and taken out into user land and run that way. The thing that, that drives me nuts is that there's a big cargo cult mentality that just blindly states, oh, FreeBSD's network stack is better. And there's, you know, there's zero data backing that up. I have not found that to be the case. Both operating systems have quite competent network stacks and is just a quick and easy counterpoint without trying to get way deeper into technical weeds than we have the time or the inclination for. As a counterpoint, Cumulus Networks has been building, you know, 40 gigabit switches on Linux for a long time and got acquired relatively recently by NVIDIA, who continue to use the Linux network stack for their gigantic, you know, network backbone infrastructure. And my point there is not to say, no, Linux is better than BSD. It's just... You can't just make these blind statements like, oh, the network stack's better there. No, it, it just, it, it doesn't fly. It's not that simple. Yeah, there's not really an objective way to measure it. And the difference between them would be awfully minor. If one was so much better than the other, people would fix it. The difference would be awfully minor. And it's not, you can't just say this network stack versus that network stack. You know, a, what are you looking for? Are you looking for, you know, the, the best QoS when you're trying to, to manage latency? Are you looking for maximal throughput? What scale are you looking at? Are you talking about a one gig network, a 10 gig network, 40 gig? Are you talking about Mellanox stuff? I mean, just, you can't just say network. It's like saying, oh, well, Chevy makes better cars than Ford. And then you find out the guy just likes the cup holder. <laughs> There's a lot more than that. Okay, cool. You found a car that had the cup holder that fit your big gulp just right. And I'm not trying to take that away from you, but you can't say that means this whole car is better. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to find out more about that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or questions for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Francis has done. He writes, I've been won over by the Church of ZFS. 
and I'm looking to move my media server and other local storage over to it. With all the guides and info out there, I'm a bit overwhelmed. What I would like help with is, number one, should I use something like TrueNAS, or should I use a general purpose OS like Ubuntu? I think that mostly comes down to, are you using it just as a storage appliance, as if it was you know, just a big external hard drive and you bought it and you put it over there and you store stuff on it and that's it? Uh, maybe running the Plex off it or whatever? Or are you going to be trying to do other stuff with it as well? It's your whole home server, so it's got to run this, that, and the other thing, and you want to run a VM on it and a bunch of other things. Then you probably want more of a general purpose OS. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other point that I would make is you need to figure out how capable you need it to be as a file server that interacts with consumer machines and with like normal consumer type people. If you're going to have very newbie type users with, you know, all they really want is just to be able to get access to files, read files and and write files, just a plain vanilla Samba is generally going to be fine. On the other hand, if you've got power users, but not sysadmins who expect things like, oh, well, I want to be able to go into Windows Explorer on my map drive and right click a folder and set the properties on it and have it work properly rather than lock me and everybody else out of it until you go in and manually unmunge it, I guess, to be polite about it, then you're probably going to want a different approach. Now, you can absolutely still use a vanilla operating system for it. If you just want to run Samba on the vanilla operating system, then you're probably going to be better off with FreeBSD because the ACL mapping is a lot easier. Uh, your other option, if you prefer to go the Linux side, is just do your file sharing inside a VM. That VM can be uh, like a Zigmanaz VM, or it could be a FreeBSD VM, or you could literally just spin up a Windows VM on there and do Windows for like all your Windowsy stuff, which these days is usually my preference. Okay, number two, what should I definitely do with the ZFS configuration and setup? I'm going to say enable compression. Yes, you should enable compression, uh, but you uh, you got ahead of yourself a little bit, Joe. The first thing that you have to do is make sure that you know what the A shift should be for the devices that you're using. In most cases, ZFS will be able to get that right automatically because it queries the device and asks it, what is your sector size and sets A shift appropriately. Unfortunately, there are some very popular consumer devices that lie about what their native sector size is. Uh, out of a misguided attempt to still, in the year 2022, be backwards compatible with Windows XP. In particular, if you've got Samsung solid-state drives, they will tell the operating system, hey, we're native 512-byte devices. It's a lie. When they tell ZFS that, ZFS will, if you have not specified a shift, set it to 9, which means 512-byte sectors, and your performance will be horrible. In general, I recommend always just going ahead and manually setting a shift to at least 12, which means 4K sectors. Your options are going to be 12 or 13. If you've got Samsung SSDs, they perform better with 8K sectors, which a shift equals 13. But it's not terrible on a shift equals 12, even on the Samsung ones. And you basically can't go wrong with a shift equals 12, because even if you've got a 512 byte sector device, it will function perfectly happily with a 4K sector size defined in ZFS. The only downside you get is a little bit of extra slack space consumed, and I promise you, you will not miss it on any kind of vaguely normal file system setup. Exactly. And the other big advantage to just going with the 4K sectors by default is down the road when you replace that device and they finally stop making Windows XP compatible disks and all you can buy are ones that are 4K, it'll just work and you won't run into problems being like, hey, that device has sectors that are too big and it won't be possible to do. 
Absolutely. Now, the next thing is um, I would recommend, because you're asking this question, I mean, you clearly don't want to just install it and good enough the heck with it and move on, right? So the next thing that you really want to look at tuning is your record size. That can have the absolute biggest impact on a ZFS system. The default record size is 128K. And what that means is a standard ZFS operation is going to be 128 kilobytes in size. Now, uh, that's kind of a, it's not really good for anything, but it's not horrible at anything. If you've got random access, like MySQL binaries or, you know, something like that, where you've got random access inside a file in small increments, you're going to have some significant read, modify, write going on. You've got some, some amplification because you can only access the internals of this file in 128 kilobyte blocks. So if you know you're going to have like a MySQL database or anything else that's going to have small random access inside a file. Especially VM images are the biggest thing that is always going to be small chunks. Yes, VM images also. Um, if, you, if you're on Linux and you're using KVM, it's going to be 64K for the default block size. But it, it comes down to you want to match your record size to the size that your applications are doing random IO inside files. Now, here's the other thing, and this is what a lot of people miss. This only counts for random access inside one large file. If you've got lots and lots of little tiny files, ZFS will store those in small records no matter what your record size is. So it does you no good to set teeny tiny record size thinking you're optimizing for small file access because that's where the pain is. It's only for random access inside files. Okay, number three, what should I absolutely avoid doing? Also, any sources or Ars Technica articles for some getting started ZFS reading material would be greatly appreciated. So links Jim and Alan will put in the show doc at some point between now and tomorrow when I publish this, and I will put all those links in. What should you avoid doing? Not checking that your scrubs are happening for a start, not having any sort of monitoring. Yes, but let's, let's back up a little bit. The immediate advice for the thing not to do, given that we've already talked about A-shift and not getting that wrong, when you pick your topology for your pool, don't get super excited about the idea of one single super duper wide RAID-Z VDEV. Like say, oh, I got 16 bays, I'm going to be one big 16 wide RAID-Z2 VDEV. It's a bad idea. You're not going to get the storage efficiency you think you do out of that super wide stripe. It's going to be inefficient. And if you're on Rust, you're liable to have a lot of performance problems. You want to split that up into manageable sized VDEVs. If you want the highest performance, you want mirrors. If you want better storage efficiency, you want RAID Z2. I would strongly recommend try to get your RAID Z2 in four, six, or 10 wide, no wider, and try to avoid the in-between. There is a big argument that if you're on a small server and things are kind of weird, you're like, well, I've got room for a seven, but I don't have room for a 10, it'll probably be fine. Matt Ahrens has a good article explaining why it's okay to have wonky-sized RAID ZV devs, and I do agree with it, but if you can avoid getting wonky, please do. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your feedback or questions. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.